Medic 43, District 1, Engine 51, Response, Cardiac Arrest. Hello, everybody. Welcome again to another edition of the MCHD Paramedic Podcast. This is Dr. Casey Patrick, and as you can tell by the background noise, we're live again at Texas EMS Conference 2022. This has become a bit of a recurring tradition for us here on the podcast. And the beauty of being here with all of our colleagues and all the expertise that descends on Austin right before Thanksgiving every year is that we really can target and corner some content experts and some EMS experts out there in fields where maybe we're doing collaborative projects, joint projects, similar projects, and talk about best practice nationwide versus some of the efforts that we're doing both clinically and operationally in Montgomery County. And we're lucky to have a special guest today. I'll let you introduce yourself, Jared. Go ahead. Oh, hello. I'm very thankful to be here. My name's Jared Troutman. I'm an EMS physician out in West Texas in Lubbock, Texas, about a six-hour drive out of here. Uh, but I have a national role with the GMR. I'm the National Medical Director of Innovative Practices. So essentially anything that doesn't involve the normal movement of patients from point A to point B, I get to have fun with. So big things is nurse navigation, our hospital at home projects, and ET3. So the idea for the episode stemmed from our recent dive, if you will, into the ET3 project in Montgomery County with a telemedicine option for our medics to use. And we wanted to bring Jared on to talk about nationwide best practices with GMR, some of our shared difficulties, some of our shared successes, and sort of where we think ET3 is going to go in the future. So uh, Dr. Dixon, kind of take it from there and, and lead us off sort of into what we're doing in Montgomery County and then you can tag team from there. Thanks, Casey. Uh, I'm going to start by putting this all on Chief Crocker, who is really our lead on ET3. So our our initiative for innovative practice, different practice, other than taking patient triaging, you know, treating in the field and plus minus transport. So anything outside of that really came with our participation in ET3, which is this alternative treat treatment triage and transport yep uh, you got it methodology from from medicare so this program came up it was all pre-covid then covid got in the way uh, but we decided to opt in and we had our lead on it was chief crocker so chief kevin crocker who's our quality chief is going to kind of lead in and tell us how how did we get here kevin and then we'll get back to dr troutman on what his experience is at, at gmr sure thank you um so for listeners who aren't familiar with ET3, let me give you a quick background. So it does stand for emergency triage, treat, or transport. Really, the triage piece hasn't come to fruition through CMS yet. They've put a pause on that. COVID clearly had a big impact on the rollout of the ET3 program. So we'll talk about two things today, which is the treat in place and the uh, treat in place and the transport to alternate destinations. So the background of this is in 2019, CMS came out with the ET3 program. And really the point was they were looking at healthcare dollars and how they were spending tremendous amounts of money on what they saw as unnecessary ED visits or ED transport. So they, they came to EMS and said, hey, is, is there a way we can avoid having patients go to the emergency room who don't need to be there? Um, and that led to really the two options we have today, which is the transport to an alternate destination. So identifying low acuity patients and transporting them to a, a more appropriate facility. So think of your low acuity patients who uh, could be treated in an urgent care or a physician's office potentially, or um, the psychiatric emergency patients who could be seen at a standalone behavioral clinic 
who doesn't need to be in the emergency department because that's not good for the healthcare system as a whole. It's also not good for those patients. So the goal is to get the, the right patient to the right place the first time uh, to make the healthcare system more efficient, both for healthcare dollars and also from a patient care and outcome standpoint. The second part of that was treat in place. And you could do that via two ways. I'm not sure how GMR is doing it, so I'm looking forward to hear Dr. Troutman talk about that. But you can do it through uh, treat in place at home. So if you have a uh, advanced level provider, and when I say advanced level provider, it has to be a nurse practitioner or a PA or a physician, uh, go out to the patient's home and visit them. Uh, it does require an active, an activated 911 response. So if they have to call 911, it can't be just call the station or schedule an appointment. It has to be an, a 911 activation to fall under ET3. And they can go out to the patient's house and treat them there. Or you could do it via telehealth, which is the way we do it. So you respond to the 911 call, go to the patient's home, you identify as the low acuity patient, and then you connect them via telehealth with that advanced level provider. So at MCHD, we do that via telehealth through a third-party contractor. That's really how we got in the door. You know, for us, you know, it's a, you know, why would you want to put yourself out there and do this new innovative program that's not tested and you're not familiar with, you're not sure how it's going to go. We think this is the future of healthcare. We think that this is where uh, EMS is headed as an industry. We're more of the healthcare system and not that we're not public health or public responders and, you know, like the fire departments and police departments, but we are part of the healthcare industry. And I think this is us stepping and assuming our role in the, in the healthcare industry. You know, when we look at why do patients call 911, and of course, there's a subset that has an emergency, but we know there's a subset that doesn't. We know that from the practice we've we've done, but the reality is a patient needs a solution. They do have a problem. Everyone that calls 911 has a problem, and they need a solve for that problem. And that's where us as the, the pre-hospital healthcare experts can come in, and sometimes that solve is a helicopter. Sometimes it's an ambulance box. Sometimes it's a telehealth conversation like we're talking about. Maybe sometimes it is some sort of triage line and no response. And that whole gamut and that the back piece of that is really where EMS is going to the future. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And tell us a little bit. Let's start with let's take this bit by bit and talk about the treat in place. So just walk us through what your experience is at GMR, how you how your group set this up, who you use for telehealth. How did you vet that all out, Jared? So great question. So, so the first and foremost, what we had to come up with is who is a, quote, ET3 patient? You, you know, we how do you define low acuity? Is that based on something from dispatch? Is that based on vital signs and chief complaint? And we worked with a lot of even Dr. Dixon, you and I worked together on, on that. We brought in all other stakeholder medical directors, and there's essentially been a protocol out there that I think most of us is sim- pretty similarly adopted that does tie some loose vital signs with it and does tie chief complaint. You know, somebody with chest pain probably is not going to be the best patient for a treatment in place, but I'll even throw the caveat that maybe because a 20-year-old with chest pain after you know getting hit with a volleyball might be a good ET3 patient, but a 60-year-old with nausea and chest pain probably isn't. Um, so we had to start with that. And then your point, the next question became, well, who's going to take these telehealth calls? So it was really important um, to us that it was driven by board-certified emergency physicians um, and or EMS physicians or those with some EMS experience. So we've got a national partnership with Envision Health, which is a large provider of emergency physicians, and a group of about 15 of them that's developed a virtual emergency services uh, that we contract with. 
to be our uh, primary care provider. So, and you know, there's key performance indicators we watch. But what I think is great is is we're, we're live in 43 different sites across the U.S. And within three minutes, our crews can have a board-certified emergency physician on a telehealth device talking to a patient 24-7, 365. That blows my mind. That's that's phenomenal numbers. It is. Let me let me be the devil's advocate here and ask ask some difficult questions. So if I'm the medical director, I look at this program and it's it's funded by Medicare. It's for traditional Medicare patients. Why is a medical director would I potentially want to give up all this revenue and from all these other patients that aren't going to fit into the Medicare slot that I'm going to treat in place and leave in place and leave that run revenue on the table. So for many private services, they depend on that. Talk a little bit about the finances, guys, and how, how do you get paid for this? How do, how do we operationalize this? Yeah, so, so, you know, one thing, big picture, I, I've kind of been saying, I think we need to get away from using the term ET3. You know, that is a CMMI, CMS term. Yeah. Um, the reality is this goes beyond that particular project. Um, we're sitting here in Texas. Texas has expanded Medicaid to pay for this service as of just a few months ago, um, and many other states have done that as well. So we're already seeing our Medicaid population now having funding for this, and it's also been our experience in other EMS agencies. I don't know if y'all have dived into it, but we've seen a lot of private payers also paying for the services as well. And then, of course, we, we get into unfunded, and the reality is this is a, a cheaper cost for them. So, you know, unfunded can be a struggle, period, but if the end of the day that bill's cheaper, I think you're more apt to ultimately get paid for that. But I think what you really got to circle it back around to, because, you know, we can dive into the finances, but it's what's right for patients. And, you know, ultimately, certainly us as clinicians, this is what the patient needs. You know, they don't need to go to the emergency department. They've got good physician oversight. They're still seeing a physician and they're getting the care what they need right there in their home. Couldn't agree more. I think it's one of the things that came up after COVID is we realized with all the staffing crises and the volume going up that we needed to work smarter and put our resource, put the right resource with the right patient. And there is some efficiencies there. As Dr. Troutman said, if you can make a a five-minute contact and then get back into service, that is really, really, really benefiting our service rather than a hospital wall time, a transport time. And Chief Crocker, can you talk about some of the time efficiencies you've seen at MCHD with this program? Yeah, let me circle back and touch on what Dr. Troutman said there. And we have the same approach at MCHD. Uh, we think this is the right program for healthcare and for us as a system. So uh, while ET3 is a CMS, Medicare, fee-for-service program only, we actually use it for all of our patients that we encounter uh, because we do think it's the right thing for every patient we encounter and for the healthcare system as a whole. As far as the privates go, uh, it's been slow dragging them along, but they are they are starting to fall in line and get on board. There's a big national push and a state of Texas push to get the, the payers aligned with that. And I think we are making progress and we're definitely moving in the right direction. As far as some of the soft costs you talk about, um, for us, when we do a treat in place, uh, an ET3 treat in place, telehealth visit uh, with a physician in, in the home, it's about, it saves us about 30 minutes total. Uh, so we're back in service, saving about 30 minutes of UHU time. With the staffing crunch and the increase in call volume, uh, which is not going away anytime soon, those 30 minutes are critical to us. It's a, it's a soft cost, but it's a huge savings. Uh, for, for our system in whole. Let, let me let me play devil's advocate again because I'm going to take the path of the employee. I'm going to pretend that I'm a medic even though that I'm not. And you could insert emergency physician. You can insert anyone here. But you're also putting people back to work to catch another call quicker with potentially not an incentive to do so. You're also inserting a 
technological piece that wasn't there before. We know how people love change. And so you have a change introduction, you have potential back-end service quicker, whereas these are pretty low acuity calls. Anyways, pretty easy ride to the hospital. I don't have to pull out my smart device and use some sort of app-based, web-based new application that I don't know how to use and I have to have a password for and on and on. How have you, within GMR, Jared, introduced this to medics as a positive? And I know the answer is this is what's best for patients. I, I get that. But, on but then the, there's the reality. The reality. I've and the reality. How do we, how do we sell it? So I will tell you, not just us and, you know, talking to other agencies, it's been a struggle. Um, flat out, it's been a struggle. To, to your points, you, you know, the path of least resistance is put the patient in the back of the ambulance. I know how to go hospital A and drop the patient off there and then get back into service. And, and you're right, there's not always benefits to that individualized uh, provider on the truck necessarily to be back into service quicker. Um, so, you know, we certainly do look at, though, from the system standpoint, um, it's much better and, and really best for patients. I'm curious to hear how, how have y'all been trying to drive and, and, and get adoption because that's something we've struggled with. Well, I have an idea I haven't, haven't shared with these guys yet. Uh, so our hospital partners, I don't know how it is up in West Texas, but they have excellent break rooms with excellent, you know, monsters and name brand uh, candy bars. I think we should do that in a truck. Like if you do an ET3, <laughs> you get five minutes to have your monster in your, uh, your Kit Kat bar as well. Uh, but seriously, um, it's been a struggle path of least resistance would be to take them to the hospital. I think it's a constant reminder that we, we got into healthcare to take care of people. And this program is about what's doing best for not only that patient that's in front of you in the moment, but the next patient who's waiting to call 911 who needs an ambulance response quick. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's baby steps, right? We are taking a brand new practice of medicine and we've trained the guys and ladies the same way to do the job the same way. And now we're saying, oh, and by the way, now add this to your job. Now your job is not to take everybody to the hospital, but try to identify these, work through this system, and then sort out these, and then take the other ones that are ill enough to go to the hospital. So it's a big practice change shift, and, and we all get in our practice. We're all practicing uh, clinicians here, and we have our own individual practice habit, and I would argue many times that's the hardest thing to overcome is just that individual. This is the way I always do it, Dr. Troutman. I, you know, I, this is the way I know how to do it. You're asking me to do something different. I would argue there's a, there's a flip side to that. Obviously, I've played that question up a little bit, but anybody ever heard the, these patients don't need to go to the hospital? Why are they calling 911? They don't need to go. We don't need to take them to the ER. And so the response from administration, from from medical direction, from clinical departments, whoever's operations, whoever's implementing these, has to be that we've heard that complaint for so long. And it's valid. So now you have an option. You have a telemedicine option. You have an option where we can treat these people where they are and not bog down the ED and not make that unnecessary trip that we've all known was there for years, decades, for that matter. So uh, you have to be realistic about what your complaints were. And when you get an option to use that, yes, it's a new app, it's a new website, it's a new password, it's a new piece of your patient care toolbox, but it's there for the patient and it's there for a problem that we've all known has existed in this world since most of us started in it. Yeah, and I think that really gets back to what I'd mentioned earlier. Patients call 911 because they need a solution to a problem and it's up to us to figure out what, what solution they need based on their healthcare complaints. All right. Let's pivot, let's pivot a little bit, Jared, to alternative destinations. You know, I know it started as a CT3, and I agree with Kevin. It's it's way past that now. The, the systems that have 
have bought into this and gone all in and said, you know, we're going to make, we're going to take the financial risk. We're going to be on the leading edge of this because we think it's the right thing to do. But we all kind of started with the ET3 foundation in place. Talk about alternate destinations. We've had zero luck with that. Have you guys had any luck at GMR with that? So, so let's talk alternate destinations. So, so one of the big issues, and, and I guess to answer, to bluntly ask, answer your question, we've not had good luck getting uh, partners in the alternate destination space. And we've tried to tease into that, you know, why? Because certainly a lot of, whenever you're talking urgent care type stuff, many of these are private businesses. You know, they want, a private business wants patients driven to them, but they have a real uncomfortability with an ambulance backing up and unloading a patient. You know, they're happy to call us and take a patient out. So it's a very foreign thing to them. So we talk about change within our own organizations. We have difficulty with it. It's much change for that. We've had a a few sites across the U.S. that has had some decent luck with um, alternate destinations, but generally it's been difficult. Uh, You know, we found still the treatment in place, uh, you know, from a percentage-wise, you know, the vast majority of patients fit into that bucket. So that's where I still look at, even though we don't have alternate destinations, I don't consider that a failure. Really, the brightness of this program is the treat in place. I do think the bang for your buck in this program is the treat in place. Uh, we've had a little luck with alternate destinations. Uh, we've had a long-standing history with a psychiatric, like standalone psychiatric facility, uh, and I do think that is a completely separate topic from urgent cares. Right? Those are two completely different patient populations. Uh, so, luckily, we were able to use our existing partnership with the behavioral, behavioral health facility and make them our alternate destination for ET3. I would say over the last year or two years, that's been a struggle as well. Uh, COVID has had a huge impact on their staffing, their ability to, to take patients, but they're a good partner um, and it's a really good fit for this program because those are patients who absolutely don't need to be in the emergency department. Right. Um, we're getting them to the right place the first time where they're actually gonna get you know, care for their crisis. Right, and we have had some good luck also with behavioral health and, and sometimes a combo of both where the Behavioral health centers still feel more comfortable if a physician has seen the patient. So there may be a treatment in place piece. And then the, okay, this patient is kind of medically cleared from a medical standpoint, but they still have the psychiatric illness, and then take the patient directly to behavioral health center. And honestly, at ESC 11, my other service, we are not ET3 participants, but we have an active agreement with one of our local behavioral health facilities and we medically clear those folks in the field and have had excellent success there so it speaks to the fact that this is beyond just et3 and et3 participants and whether or not you utilize an urgent care center a physician's office a behavioral health standalone facility the key there is going to be to forge those relationships to make those folks comfortable with the fact that they're going to get an ambulance because it's foreign to all those individuals so the hard part really is the legwork and the foundation building beforehand so that they can be comfortable that these patients are medically cleared, whether that's for their ankle ACE bandage, their psychiatric evaluation, their primary care office visit. And that's not something you can snap your finger with and and happen instantaneously. We've expanded some at MCHD in an entirely different direction with the idea of telehealth being available, talking about moving beyond ET3, and that's into our high-risk refusal patient population in that these patients are patients that aren't going to go to the ED. We know that they have high risk for being sick, and we we teach this very specifically at MCHD. You can listen to our high-risk refusal podcast if you want more on some of the delineations there. But basically just assume you've got a patient that's tachycardic and has a red leg, and the family member calls, 
and they're febrile. And so we've got a patient with cellulitis, concern for sepsis, and the family calls, patient's got capacity, doesn't want to go. Is there a way we can leverage an emergency physician, like Dr. Troutman said, a board-certified, potentially even EMS knowledgeable physician, into helping try to get this patient to the right treatment at the right time? So how have we done that at MCHD? And I'll be interested to hear the second part to see if GMR is using it in any similar way. So, so take that one, Kevin. Talk a little bit about about our experience at MCHD. Sure. So looking, you know, one of the benefits of ET3 was having that telehealth component added to the system. So now we have a board-certified emergency position available on the other end of the iPad 24 hours a day, seven days a week, which we don't always have. Uh, and we've always had our medical director you can call, but that's just a, a completely different system different. and it's harder And but versus having a program in place. So when you look at risk to your agency, uh, those high-risk refusals do present a high-risk group of patients or people who you may leave at home who may have a bad outcome and whether you you know documented that appropriately or not it still opens up the door to uh, a big risk within your agency so when you look at that that category of patients um, for us having the telehealth component having the physician available uh, seemed like a no a, like a no-brainer for us and a huge win uh, not only for us uh, from a risk standpoint but also for the patient um, you're connecting the patient with a physician and I'm a paramedic um, and all all the other paramedic uh, colleagues who are listening to this, no offense, um, patients listen better to doctors than they do to paramedics or nurses. Um, and I don't mean that in any way, shape, or form to be offensive. It's just a fact. Um, they they will take that feedback from the physician more than they will from you. So it's not that you're not doing a good job or you're not explaining the risk appropriately. It's just when they hear it from a doctor, they, they take it more serious. Um, so for us, when we turned on telehealth for high-risk refusals, we've seen a, a big swing where our, uh, our telehealth providers able to convince about 23 to 25% of patients who are consulted for high-risk refusal to end up being transported to the hospital, which I think is a huge win both for us as the agency, you as the provider, more importantly for the patient to, to go to the hospital and get treatment they need. Right, that, <clears throat> that's awesome. So what I'll say, kind of our approach was is can a telehealth visit potentially add you know, something positive to the patient. Because we want to be real careful to not all of a sudden say every refusal that EMS interacts with needs to go to a telehealth doc. Because, you know, we get the passerby calls, hey, there's a car wreck, and EMS responds, and, and the folks are completely fine. That should not go to the telehealth provider. But if, if just kind of like the outline that, that y'all laid out, you know, you have that patient that, you know, they really need care, that they need to go be seen. And then can we leverage the physician? Because you're right, that MD title brings a, a little bit of benefit when you say, hey, I'm Dr. Troutman, and you really, I'm really worried about you, you need to go. You're going to get some conversions. It's the right thing to do for the patient. The other piece of that is something we sort of, sort of coined next best care, because you have that same patient, they have a obviously cellulitic leg, they're febrile, they're a little tachycardic, they're absolutely refusing to go. You know, in the past, what did we do? We said, okay, sign here, we didn't take them. Well, so now we do have the ability for the doc to try to talk them into it, but as you mentioned, you know, only one out of four times were successful. But that next best care, we say, you know, I really think you need to go to the hospital. I get, we can't force you, but I'm gonna write you some clindamycin or some antibiotics, because uh, you know, what I'm seeing here, you've got a bad cellulitis in your leg. You really need lab tests, you need IV antibiotics but the clinda is probably better than doing nothing, so let's give that a shot. So we've kind of to uh, coined that next best care, and we've had a lot of success with that as well. I love that. Some care is better than no care at all. I exactly. Love it. Yeah. That is officially getting stolen. Thank yeah, you. No, for, thank uh, you. We, we're going to R&D that, my friend. Co copyright? All right. Well, I'll have to just 
Well, I guess you'll, I'll hear from your lawyer. <laughs> that, yeah, we have a no, few I, of them. No, I, I think that's brilliant. I love that. Next best carrot. I mean, that's really, at the end of the day, what we do in the emergency department. Absolutely. I have, I have discussions with patients, and if they will not stay, they don't have to. It's a free country, and yep. we do work for them. Yep. I do the next best thing. Yep. I say, hey, will you be willing to take these antibiotics? One of the things I'll say uh, that I like about the, the telehealth program is that not only will we get the, the script, but ours has a follow-up component mm-hmm. to it too. So let's just talk about one more thing here as we morph in. How about, where are we going with this, Jared? If we if we have that patient, now they have a cellulitic leg, but maybe they don't meet this the sepsis criteria. Talk about hospital in the home. How does GMR integrate hospital in the home services into the whole scheme of this uh, alternative or these new innovative ways of looking after people? So great question. I'll, I'll tell you the, the full-on integration is really yet to come. So, so we um, do do hospital at home. We're currently in eight sites across the U.S. Uh, with I think four more coming on early next year. Uh, we've had about 17,000 unique patient encounters where we are using paramedics in the home as the in-home clinician that work via telehealth with an off-site nursing team and hospitalist team taking care of inpatient status patients. You know, so, so these are cellulitis requiring IV antibiotics, maybe a pneumonia that doesn't really need oxygen. We're not doing telemetry yet, but I think that's coming as we get devices that do better at it. Um, but you're right that the next level is, when can we take a patient from the field and say, you know, th- this is a little bit too bad for me to just treat in place. I don't think you need to go to the emergency department. Let me pull out my iStat. I'm going to get some lab tests for the doc, you know, the doc, the doctor dictating all this. Maybe let's give some IV fluids. Maybe we dispatch a mobile x-ray and, and we do all this and say, look, there is a pneumonia here. We're going to go ahead and admit you into your home. You're already here, but we're going to pull out a tech kit. And now you're inpatient status and we're going to leave. But another team's going to come in and take care of you over the next three or four days and watch as you improve or you might deteriorate. But if you do deteriorate, we have paramedics, right? And they know how to do stuff as things worsen. They also know how to recognize Miss Jones from yesterday today is a lot worse, and we need to do something about that. So I, this is the stuff I find fascinating as we start to integrate, pull all this together. It's coming. I love this concept because for once, I've said many, many times, I think a lot of people would agree with me, that the healthcare system is really set up for my convenience as a physician, not the patient. The patients want to get care where they want it when they feel ill. Yes, we have to serve the customer. You know, I know in the past people don't like viewing patients as customers, but I'm sorry, that's what they are. And we have to learn from the, the likes of Amazon, Lyft, and all these other disruptors t- to things. And that's where we're going. When patients want care, they want it right now. They don't want to wait a week to see their doctor. There's a second piece in there that oftentimes, I think when we're discussing this within, even folks in the healthcare system, that can get lost and that is well you can't do inpatient care with telemedicine alone and i would argue maybe you can maybe you can't but there's a piece that we have to offer as an ems system that people do not appreciate and that's the facilitated telemedicine aspect of having a paramedic there that can reassess patients that know sick from not sick that can do ekg lab work eye stats reassessment and facilitate that telemedicine visit to the off-site physician, uh, the director of care, that's different than just that physician looking at an MD Live visit with no monitoring, no lab work. And so we leverage our people, 
to, to do that and let them use their skills and use their knowledge. And that's the difference. Yes. That, that's where that's where the difference comes in. The other thing I like, is, you know, where is the ceiling? You know, we've educated our medics how to place foleys, how to do bladder scans. We're looking at uh, pick lines and med line placement. These are all within the scope of, of paramedics you know, with some education. And, and, th- and those are many of the things that those inpatient piece needs. And you're right, that facilitated telehealth, paramedics really win at this. Yeah, 100%. Um, and it's not that people call 911 inappropriately, right? It's that they don't know how to navigate the healthcare system. They need a solution. They need a this solution. Is, this is about helping navigate a very complicated system. Mm-hmm. Okay, with a couple minutes we have left, we haven't talked about, let's go back to the front end of this and talk about alpha and omega determinants and maybe not responding at all. Tell us about your experience there. We've talked to our telehealth provider. We've talked to other folks in the industry. And for us as medical directors, it's been something we've been a little bit wary to to stick our toe in there, Jared. Talk about your experience there. Yeah, so at GMR, we have a nurse navigation program that it started almost five years ago in Washington, D.C., is where that kind of first born out. And since then, it's in over 20 sites uh, all across our country, um, from Wake County to Seattle, many other places across the U.S. It's actually coming to Waco, Texas here in the next couple months. But with this system, there's a series of questions, similar like we're used to the emergency medical dispatch questions. There's a series of questions that we have a nursing team that ask, but they get sent the alpha and omega calls. Those, those already, EMD does pretty good at finding those low-level calls. And then our nursing team starts asking questions. And the first few questions are designed to say, you know, this might actually be an emergency. We're going to send you back to the emergency medical system and get an ambulance response. But as we get down the questions, we've developed a um, needs match time and resource allocation. We call them TARA, which essentially looks at a time factor. So we delineate patients or triage patients into you need care within an hour, within one to three hours, three to six hours. And then we work with our local community partners and say, you know what, we can get you into an urgent care. And we also at that point talk about payer status so we can work with FQHC, private payers, and we can get patients uh, into the, the, the right resource that they need. All the way down to our lowest level, maybe they just need some nurse advice. So that program has been really, really effective at keeping the lowest of low acuity out of the EMS system, period, with no response. And how has your risk been there? So as a medical director, I'm, I mean, we're always worried about risk to the patient, first and foremost, and then risk to the organization. How's your risk? How many have you had any unexpected outcomes? No, we, we've, you know, there's been over 70,000 patients through the process. There's been no big negative outcomes. Um, you know, patient, we also do patient satisfaction on everyone. Our satisfaction scores are through the roof. In fact, usually if they're not that satisfied, it's because of whatever system they went, whatever center they went to that the, the doctor didn't treat them nice or something, but that's beyond our control. But patients love it because, again, it gets back to that. They call 911. They're looking for a solution to their problem. They don't always necessarily want to go to an emergency department, and they find out they can go straight to an urgent care. Um, and we even work with uh, Lyft, and we can take the patient to the urgent care with Lyft and pick them back up and bring them home. And, oh, by the way, you have a script. We'll stop off at your local pharmacy and get the script for you, too. That's, that's a great program. And so we haven't, we haven't put our toe in that water yet, but I do envision that being somewhere we're moving. And probably all of us has a whole healthcare system. Absolutely. Uh, just the, the hours of not having to put a resource on those calls is so it's valuable huge. and so much soft cost. Yep. Um, the staffing crisis and the how busy our hospitals are isn't going away anytime soon. Yep. So, so yeah, with, 
the, the data with that, you know, if you look at alpha omega calls, you're usually looking about 10 to 15% of the calls, and we can take a 60 to 80% of those out of the emergency medical system. So there's still that 20% to your point on risk. Those first few questions are, are, are there to They're going to bounce back to exactly. the 911 response. Yeah, we, we don't okay. want to take 100% of them out because it's not perfect. Yeah. And we also, one of the reasons, you know, we still use healthcare providers in that role. Um, When we use nurses instead of paramedics, that question sometimes comes up. The general public's just got a comfortability when they call the doctor's office, they talk to a nurse. And we also have the clinician there. So even if the computer, the questions say, do this, if in their mind they're going, I don't like this answer, I think they need to go to the ER, they can override that. So wrapping this up, because so many different pieces and prongs that exist here within alternate transport, hospital at home, nurse navigation. It goes back to the very beginning of trying to get the patient the right care at the right time as efficiently as possible. And if y'all are listening out there and you're thinking, okay, this is GMR talking to MCHD. These are programs and pieces that they have in place because they have you know, large budgets and huge staffs, and this is never something that's going to happen in my organization. I would urge you to think about when you listen to Esmolol for refractory VF or other forward-thinking clinical topics that we've discussed on the podcast a million times. A lot of times we hear about things like ECMO for refractory VF and ECMO-assisted CPR and, and, you know, the idea of comprehensive stroke centers and endovascular stroke retrieval there was many years of equivocal endovascular retrieval trials until the technology caught up with efficiency and caught up with cost effectiveness until now it is standard of care and our mortality is improving light years because of it so we're still in the infancy of telemedicine integration and alternative destination integration and nurse navigation integration into EMS as a whole. But where we want to be is to be knowledgeable about best practices, to talk to folks who are doing it extensively, like Dr. Troutman at GMR, and try to learn from each other and learn best practices and move this forward in the end for the patient. So are all, all listeners out there going to have these options at their service? No. But that doesn't mean we don't need to think about this and know where this technology and these offerings are going. So thanks to Kevin for all your hard work at MCHD being the uh, whipping boy at times for this. It's been, it's been painful, but enlightening. And, and like Dr. Dixon said, this is new early implementation and that's always painful because people don't like change. Uh, MCHD listeners out there, we're moving in the right direction slowly, but sur- surely. Thanks, Dr. Trapman, for joining us. Thanks, everyone, for listening, as always. Anybody want to add anything before we wrap up? Well, thank you so much for having me. I enjoyed the discussion today and look forward to going onwards and upwards. Well, we don't have, we don't have the bagpipe folks, but someone yeah. is announcing something <laughs> overhead, so this goes with our tradition. Thank you all, as always, for listening. Shoot us an email, podcast at mchd-tx.org. If you have questions, you want access to any of our telemedicine materials, we're always happy to share. If you have questions or ideas for future podcasts, shoot them our way. Leave us a like wherever you listen to your podcast. We like five-star reviews. If you're thinking about a four-star, just sleep on that one and shoot us a five-star in the morning. Thank you all for listening. Have happy holidays. We'll talk to everybody again soon. 
This podcast was brought to you by the Montgomery County Hospital District, Texas. Production and editing by Andrew Adams. Questions or comments, which are always welcome, can be sent to podcast at mchd-tx.org. Make sure to subscribe above to keep updated to all our future casts. Music, copyright, Kevin McLeod and Competech.com. Licensed under Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0.